So if you would, open your Bibles with me to Mark 7.31. Mark 7.31 this morning. And I want to read the text to you before we start diving into it. Beginning in verse 31, Mark writes, Then he, speaking of Jesus, turned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. His ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. What a glorious narrative we have before us here in Mark. One about Christ. Those are always glorious. Always good. But here in this narrative, God is doing something very important as we are introduced to a man living in a world of silence. This man, who is likely a Gentile, he would have been one that, uh, well, the, the Jewish religion and the Jewish leaders at the time would have been unable to help and actually would not have helped because this man would have been considered unclean. First, he would be a Gentile and unclean. Second, he would be defiled by his own physical problems. He's blind and mute or has a speech impediment. So in reality, when we come to this narrative, here's what we're learning about this man. This is a man who seemed to have no hope in this world and was without God. And he probably felt like that. He probably felt like God would not be concerned about him since no one else in his realm of friends and people he knew, even Jewish people he might have known, they didn't care about him. They, they considered him odd, problematic, maybe even cursed by God. So this is a very important story, but it's not about the man. It's about the one who comes to the man. The man is addressed by one who would give him hope here in this text. And this man probably was thinking when this event was taking place, thinking in that moment, I have no hope. What are they doing? Why are they dragging me to maybe another healer of some sort, another physician? I don't know what's going on. Why are they doing this? I, I don't think anyone would be able to help me anyway. He's, he's just going with them. But that man's thinking is going to change that day. His whole life's going to change that day when he meets Jesus. Because in this encounter, this man will learn that God isn't distant at all. God has drawn near, and God is about to reveal his own personal care for him in the midst of his suffering silence, because that silence is going to be broken. It's going to be broken, though, in particular by the voice of his almighty, powerful, and compassionate creator, Jesus. So, once again, Mark takes us to a narrative that reveals the glory of Jesus' great compassion. We see that flowing on every line from this text. But if that's all we see, if, if all we see in this narrative 
is the beauty of Jesus's compassion. We aren't seeing the big picture and the divine reason that Mark alone out of all the gospel writers, Mark alone puts this into his gospel account. Church, listen, the reason the reason Mark details this story here, the reason is, is to answer a question. It's to answer a question that Jesus' own disciples had already asked on that stormy sea of Galilee when Jesus said, be still, and the calm came over the sea. And that question was, who then is this? That's the question that Mark's narrative is going to answer today. Now, it took God later on in Mark 8, opening the ears of Peter to actually know the answer to this question. Whenever Peter or Peter is asked by Jesus, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Messiah, Christ. You are the Christ. But saints, here's what's amazing in this narrative we're reading here. Before Peter says that, before that happens, before that revelation comes to Peter there, that revelation is about to be opened up to Gentiles in the miracle of Mark 7. It's going to be opened up there because this miracle reveals something very important to us as we study this text. And it's certainly important to those who heard and saw what took place in this text. This miracle reveals that the promised blessings of the messianic age that was inaugurated with Jesus' incarnation when God the Son, Jesus, took on flesh, our anointed Savior, when he came, those blessings began to be poured out. But not just on the Jews, but the Gentiles also. They received the promised blessing of the Messiah as well. So, so that's part of the big picture that is being displayed in this glorious miracle in Mark 7. And we need to keep that in our mind as we read it, go through it this morning. We need to look at our text this morning with new eyes. Eyes that look to behold the revelation of the Messiah, our Messiah. In verse 31, we read this, that Jesus, after being in this Gentile region in Tyre and Sidon, it says, he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So here's what's going on here. Note that he's, he's already in a very foreign land, if you will, a land that the Jews around him would have been very uncomfortable in. And he's there once again coming into this region for a purpose, deeper into this region for a purpose. In verse 31, we see that he goes deeper. That's what it's saying there. Further, deeper. This is now a return, if you will, back to where he had started at one point. He's going to the region of the Capitalists. And on this journey, what, what those who were in Israel and those who he had just encountered in the Pharisees and the scribe, what he had seen with them was that this would be something they needed to learn from, that he was willing to go to those they considered to be unclean and undefiled, those who were unredeemable and not worthy of God's compassion. Now he's going deeper into that region as a rebuke to them and to reveal something glorious to these needy people here. Because what he reveals to the people in Mark 7 is this, that that God's saving mission on earth, God the Son's saving mission on earth, it will include Gentiles, not just People who are ethnically Jewish. Now, this was radical at the time. This was something unheard of. The Jews thought that God was only their God and everyone else would be considered unclean. That God only loved Israel, no one else. The nation, no one else. But Jesus is breaking that false understanding here. 
And we know that, like I said, this isn't the first time Jesus has been to this region. He came there once before, but this time he's received much differently than the last time when he came there. Back in Mark 5, you don't have to turn there. Let me just kind of give you what was going on. The first time Jesus shows up there in this area, he shows up and delivers a man who is possessed by a legion of demons. And yet, even after he gloriously sets this man free from this demon possession, the people in that region, they didn't receive him with blessing. They didn't receive him by saying to him, stay here with us, Jesus. No, they begged Jesus to depart from them, to leave from that place. So Jesus did. He departed. He left. As he was leaving and his disciples with him, they were getting into a boat. There was a man that didn't want him to leave there. The man who'd had the demons drove out of him. That man comes to Jesus and he begins to beg Jesus, let me go with you. I don't want to stay here. I want to go with you. But Jesus did not allow him to go with him at that time. Instead, Mark tells us there in chapter 5 that Jesus said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. That's what happened the first time Jesus came there. And saints, I think that now when Jesus comes back there, I think that the way he is received here in Mark 7:32 is as a direct result of the missionary work that the man who was set free from the demons did. When he obeyed Jesus' command and he went throughout that region telling everyone there how much the Lord has done for him. And that's why I think in Mark 7... I think in Mark said when this crowd, I think that's why they're they're gathering so joyfully and expectantly to to Jesus coming to him around him. And I think it's why out of that larger crowd, there's one particular group that comes to Jesus interceding for a man with a special need there in verse 32. Notice out of that crowd, there's there's a group, a smaller group, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. Now, lest I sound like a man with a speech impediment, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to try to pronounce the Greek word for speech impediment, and I may not get it right, but it's this, majalalas. Basically, it, it, it means someone who has an inability to speak clearly, and in this man's case, probably because he had been deaf for some time, maybe from a childhood injury or illness, and he was not able to speak Clearly, he couldn't hear his own words to enunciate and say them. They, they sounded cloudy. They sounded an utterances of some kind, but not clear speech. He had majalalas, a speech impediment. And this smaller crowd, they began to beg Jesus, just like the man set free from the demons. They began to beg Jesus, and they said to him, they, they begged him to lay his hand on him. So here we have this smaller group of people amidst this crowd bringing probably someone they considered at least maybe to be their friend or someone they knew was in need. And they brought him, this this deaf man with a speech impediment, to Jesus. And they brought him to Jesus for a specific reason, to care for him. They had heard about the testimony of Jesus and his compassion. They knew they could bring this needy man to him, so they bring him to care for him. And then amazingly, Mark goes from this small introduction 
and goes into great detail as he records what happens next in this encounter. And I think this is absolutely astounding stuff that we read here because it's so unusual. This is not the way Jesus normally works. In verses 33 to 35, Mark describes just how unusual this ministry is that Jesus performs upon this man. Mark there, let me read it to you again, tells us this. And and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. It's amazing. The details are amazing. The healing is fantastic. It's wondrous. But the process that's involved is unique. It's interesting, to say the least. Here here Mark tells us that Jesus separates this man aside from the crowd privately. And listen, everything that Mark describes here, probably because of Peter's eyewitness account, Everything he describes here is important. It's important. After he separates him privately from this crowd, then Jesus puts his fingers into the man's ears. And I think John MacArthur put it this way. He put them in and out, signifying something. They're stopped. I'm going to unstop them. Okay? He's he's communicating something. Next, Jesus spits. He spits. He likely spits on his own fingers and then takes his finger and touches the man's tongue. Then, then Jesus, looking at the man face to face, looks up to heaven. And after he has this upward glance, upward look to heaven, Jesus sighs. He sighs. Then, then Jesus finally says, be opened. So up to this point in Mark's gospel, we've never seen Jesus heal someone like this. It's certainly unusual. So our question should be, why is Jesus doing all this here in particular? I mean, Jesus didn't need to do any of these things that we see at the beginning of this. He didn't need to do any of these things to heal this man's deafness. Christ could have healed this man in a number of ways, in ways in which we've already seen him operate. He could have compassionately embraced the man like he did the leper. He could have commanded a miracle like he did with the paralytic and the demoniac. He could have allowed the man to touch him like the hemorrhaging woman did. He could have taken the man by the hand like he did Jairus's daughter. He could have even he could have even healed the man from a distance like he did for the Syrophoenician woman's daughter. But here in Mark 7, 31 to 37, we see that he did something totally different. So our question is why? Why? Well, here's what I think. I think that Jesus operates this way here because everything that takes place in this healing was Jesus's way of expressing his personal divine compassion for an individual. He cares about individuals in their need. As as incarnate God, we know this. Jesus chose to condescend to enter into our world to reveal God's compassion, God's salvation, God's desire for communion, his sympathy for man and his sovereignty over mankind. And here I think that Jesus is expressing all of that to this deaf man. And I think he expresses it by condescending 
into this man's world of silence. And he does that by communicating to him in a way in which he can understand through a rough form of sign language. So you have to understand if you're coming from where this man's came from, what Jesus is doing here is not only unique, but it's personally felt and understood. These actions would have revealed to this man that that Jesus personally cares for him as an individual made in God's image. That would be important to him, and that should be important for us to understand when we minister to those who are hurting and needy as well. And we need to remember something as we see those around us that are needy and in need of God's personal care through the gospel. We need to remember that God expresses the same kind of care for them and for us every time he breaks into the silence of our spiritually deaf ears with the gospel. That is an extension of God's mercy and grace toward sinners. And here he's, he's showing us, Jesus is showing us that God is not only able, but he's willing to break into the world of the spiritually deaf and communicate with them Because he is compassionate, he is sympathetic, and he is sovereign over the very illness that has us trapped in the silence of sin. Church, that's what's happening in Mark 7, 33 to 35. Here, Jesus is entering into the world of this man's silence to personally and powerfully reveal his love for this man as he Heals him. He could have done it from a distance, but he didn't. He came close and he came personally to this man and he loved him and he showed him that through his actions. Verse 33 says that Jesus does this by, by first taking the man aside from the crowd privately. Now, this would be important to this man if you know anything about what it's like to be deaf, if you've ever known anyone who is deaf. He's he's separating this man from the crowd privately because Jesus doesn't want this man to be intimidated, fearful, or embarrassed by the crowd around him at that moment. He, He treats the needy with tender care here. He does that because um, I'm sure this deaf man would have been uncomfortable in this kind of setting. And here's why. The deaf at this time, or, and sometimes I've known people to treat deaf people this way today. My sister interpreted for the deaf for many, many years, and I've been around many deaf people. Then and now, people sometimes treat deaf people as if they're mentally deficient. But then, maybe a, a step further away from that, deeper would be that some people believe that he would have been cursed by God. And so as a result... Many times when this deaf man came into contact with hearing people, hearing people tried to speak to him, tried to give him instructions, tried to tell him to go over there or go away, and yet he couldn't understand them. And then they would then mock him and abuse him and treat him like an imbecile. So crowds were not where he wanted to be. And Jesus shows tender mercy by separating him, taking him aside, because he knew this man would be leery of a crowd. So again, God in human flesh, knowing our neediness acts accordingly to bring us his grace jesus knew that this would be hard for this man to be in this crowd so he affords this man special and tender care and i found i found one commentary that really helped me to understand this and he put it this way one commentator said this by himself the needy man is simply another face in a crowd of gentiles but in removing him from the crowd jesus signifies to him that he is Not simply a problem, but he is a unique individual. 
This would be probably the, the first time he's ever felt like that. Jesus is treating this man as a unique individual made in God's image. And so what he wants to do is insulate the man from anything that would harm him, any distractions, any scorn from the crowd. So Jesus tenderly prepares this man by taking him away privately. He prepares him to receive God's mercy. He prepares him to, to, to experience God's care for him in a very personal way. And he does that by speaking to him in a way in which this man can understand what he's doing. He, he expresses this through touch. You know, it's one thing to be blind in this world. It's hard. It's a, it's a struggle for the blind to live in this world. I know that. But blindness, though it cuts you off from seeing, it doesn't cut you off from being a person. You hear what's going on. You can communicate with other people. Deafness isolates you, really, into a deeper kind of darkness. And for someone to now come alongside you and go to great lengths to talk to you, to speak to you, and do it by his own touch, by condescending to your problem and coming in to your life, had to be touching to him. Verse 33 says that after taking him aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears, touched his ears, He's signaling, this is where I'm going to work. Then spitting touched his tongue. Again, this is referring to Jesus spitting on his fingers and then touching the man's tongue. Now, I got to make a side comment here, okay? <laughs> I, I, I know I would be thankful if I was that man at that moment, but don't try that. On me today, okay? Um, <laughs> this spitting here seems extremely odd to me, especially me. I can't stand mouth germs. Anybody with me on that? Yeah, I can't stand mouth germs. I don't like germs in general, but I don't like mouth germs in particular. And so, so as we read this, let me just make it really clear to everybody here and calm your fears. None of your elders plan on using this mode of prayer and operation in healing you and helping you and praying for you. Okay, we're not going to do that. We're not going there. So just remove that from your mind. But, but is it important? It's very important that Jesus does this. It seems, it seems odd to us today, but it wasn't odd in that day because in Jesus' day, saliva was thought to be helpful in treating the sick. <laughs> I'm glad science has advanced. All right. Um, Praise the Lord for that. But what we need to see in what's happening here, this is very personal. This is very intimate. This is really precious. What we need to see here in this action that Jesus expresses is that for this man, this wouldn't have seemed strange at all, first of all, right? He had seen this done, operating this way in, in healers before. But what he, what he didn't see was Jesus is actually taking the time to explain what he's doing by getting down on his level. He's communicating with this man in a way that He's expressing, I'm here to help you because I care for you. So he's coming down to him in a very merciful, condescending way. Not, not condescending as in looking down upon him, but becoming like him. That's what he's doing here. He's displaying his merciful condescension to him. He's communicating to him in this touch of the tongue that he's willing to enter into this man's world to save him from his suffering. Saints, we have much in common with that man. Jesus entered into our world and went to a cross to express this to us. So this is what this man is feeling. It's what you felt when you understood the gospel. Next, in verse 34, we see Jesus go from touching his tongue to looking up to heaven. He looks up to heaven. 
And what he's doing here is he's, re, he's, he's directing this, this man's attention to God. God, God is going to be at work here. It's God who's doing this. He wants him to clearly understand that what happens next is of God and God alone. He wants him to grasp that. And after that look, after that look, it says Jesus sighs. He heaves his burden breast, expresses his deep emotion outwardly. This is a visible way of communicating with this man. This sigh would have spoken volumes about Jesus' love to this man. And here's why. This, this, sigh, this sigh wasn't merely done as a theatrical trick, a tool. It was actually real. It was Jesus' real emotional response to this man in the midst of his suffering. It wasn't fake. It came as he looked upon the man. Remember, he's there face to face, touching his tongue, looking into his eyes as he gazes up into heaven. And then he, if you almost think of it this way, he involuntarily sighs in this moment. Now, here's what you need to grasp. I need to remember the gospel of Mark only gives purposeful descriptions of Jesus's emotions. Every time you see an emotion of Jesus, it has a divine purpose. So, so we should pay very close attention to those when we see them in the text. And so when we see them, we should ask questions of them, right? Why? Why is Jesus sighing here? He, he already knows what he's going to do. He knows he's going to heal the man. That's why he's there. He knows that. So, so why does he sigh? Why doesn't he instead smile with joy at this moment? Well, it seems to me that the sigh would be the only proper response of our creator when he sees the effects, the physical effects of Adam's fall and sin in his creation. That's why I think he does this. As, as, he's, looking, as he's looking upon this man's condition, he is once again seeing the effects, the sad and destructive effects of the fall. So I think that this sigh then reveals to us something important. It reveals to us that God, God the Son is there doing this. God personally cares about fallen man's condition. That's what this sigh represents. Because this is Jesus, incarnate God doing this. And he's moved emotionally by this man's suffering. And church, this tells us something very important this morning. This tells us that our God is not indifferent toward our suffering. And we then should not be indifferent toward the suffering of those around us who are without hope in this world. We need to, if you will, emulate our Savior here. I think there's more to it than that, though. I think there's this sigh. This sigh is what captured my attention in the entire time I'm studying this. It's, it's got my mind wrapped around looking at the glorious goodness of Jesus here in this. But in this sigh, there's another reason for it that we, we don't often think about. But, but here's what we need to think about, because that's the whole intention of Mark here is to point to Jesus. Right. So we need to understand this. The reason for this sigh here is because. Once again, in looking at this deaf man's suffering, Jesus is seeing why he took on flesh and why he would go to the cross in our place. He came to rescue us from sin's curse. He sees that in that man and he sighs as a result. Then after that sigh, something glorious happens. Incarnate God, seeing the effect of sin upon man, responds with grace after seeing this and Expressing this the way he did, 
after the weight of the sigh, the deaf man's silence is broken. How is it broken? It's broken when Jesus speaks a single word in Aramaic. Ifatha, be opened. Saints, listen. <laughs> that, that single word, that one word in Mark's text here, that word, that word testifies to Jesus' sovereign authority and his divine mercy. They are both being put on full display for us in that one word. That's amazing. The incarnate God showing mercy to the man in need and then expressing grace in a personal way by coming down to his level and addressing his need and saying, be opened. He opened his physical ears. He does the same thing for you and I when he saves us. He opens our spiritual ears. And he did that by condescending to the point of death on a cross in our place. So in verse 35, we see this full display of Jesus' glory and grace as he expresses his mercy toward this man. And we see what happens in verse 35. We learn that immediately the deaf man hears Jesus' voice and his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Plainly. It's a very important word in the text. Orthos. We get the word orthodontics from this. We get the word orthodox from this. It means he spoke straightly. Spoke perfectly or completely. Now, there are things we don't have in Mark's narrative that I wish we did in many ways. Like, I want to know what happens next. I want to know exactly what came out of the man's mouth so straightly. I want to know what he said. I mean, can you just imagine what he must have clearly and immediately said to Jesus? I think you can. What did you say when your spiritual ears were opened by the voice of Jesus in the gospel? You spoke, and you spoke clearly the praises of God. You gave thanks to God. You rejoiced in God, and you did it immediately. That's what this man's doing here. I think think that's what's going on. It's pretty clear that everyone else around him was doing this, so I'm pretty sure he was included. It seems pretty obvious that joyful praise broke out throughout this area. Verse 36 says that. Now, before I read verse 36, i got to tell you this. When I read verse 36, part, partly I, I felt grieved, right? Like, come on, this is another example of people hearing Jesus make a command after he does a healing, and they go off and do this, just the opposite, right? So it's kind of sad, but I also found it kind of humorous when I read this text. And the reason I found it humorous is because we experience this almost every Sunday. What Jesus goes through here in this, we see this almost every Sunday. It reminds, it reminded me of our call of worship here at Sovereign Grace. The more we try to encourage you to be seated, the more fervently you try to squeeze in a few more words of conversation and fellowship before you find your seat. That's what it reminded me of. It's like you're, you're so full of joy over the fellowship. You know, the more we say, need to be seated, it's time to get started, the more you're like, oh, wait, 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 one more word, right? That seems to be happening here. Verse 36, Jesus charged them to tell no one, but... The more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Now, obviously this was disobedient, right? The command that Jesus gives has a divine purpose. Though we can't see it maybe right here in this text, it's revealed to us throughout the gospel. It seems likely here, though, that Jesus doesn't want to simply be known as a miracle worker. And he doesn't want to be mobbed as a result of doing this miracle because because Jesus has a greater work to do. 
He has a greater and more pressing ministry to fulfill. He is headed toward Jerusalem and a cross. And he doesn't want to be hindered on the way to the cross or misunderstood. That's, that's at least part of what's going on here when Jesus says, tell no one. Tell no one. Don't proclaim this event. But once again, as I said, the, the crowd seems to not be able to understand him. They had now stopped up ears, it seems. They, they, couldn't, they couldn't grasp what he said. They couldn't contain it because they, they couldn't contain their praise. They couldn't contain their amazement at what they were seeing and hearing from the deaf man who had been restored. So they, they, couldn't, they couldn't keep quiet. The next verse tells us that they couldn't keep quiet because they were in astonishment, if you will, shock. Now, just think about how they responded to Jesus there. Think about how hard it would have been to hear, don't tell anyone, but yet they can't hold it in, right? Think about how hard it would have been for the man to not say anything. Imagine how hard it would be for this man who had just been healed of being silent, right? He was once silent, but now he can speak. Imagine, imagine him hearing that command for the first time. Tell no one. His, his hearing was just fully restored and his speech was straightened out. And then, then he hears this. I mean, all he wants to do at this point is proclaim the praises of the one who mercifully broke into his silent world and healed him. But Jesus says, tell no one. If I'm the man hearing that, it would be like, what? I heard that. <laughs> I just heard that. What do you mean I don't tell anybody? You just set my tongue free to sing your praise. And he, he couldn't hold it back. The joy of the Savior's touch overwhelmed him. He could not hold back his praise. And obviously the ones there in this crowd couldn't hold it back either. Like I said, it's, it's kind of a, a sad commentary on our struggle with sin as even born-again people, but I understand what they're going through here. I remember when I was born again, I was coming out of the... Uh, I'd been in county jail in Okmulgee. I had been to court and found out that my charges were erased. I was set free. The first thing that happened to me, I'm walking out of the doors of the courthouse, and I run into a guy I went to grade school with, hadn't seen in years. And I sounded probably like a... probably sounded like the demoniac, just to be, to be honest. I was just so excited... I'm just rambling, and, and I'm trying to share the gospel with the guy, but I'm just overwhelmed with the joy of what God's done for me. I'm just telling him my whole story, you know? I couldn't hold it in. Here, though, you know, they're told to hold it, or they're told to hold it in. We're, we're commanded to go out and proclaim it. That's good news for us, but, but here we see that they couldn't do that. They couldn't hold back. And that, that, is, that is sad. We, we should honor the word of our Lord. But we need to keep something in mind here when we read this. Even in their disobedience, we are seeing God sovereignly at work. What's he doing? He's, he's using their sin sinlessly. Here's why I say that. This entire encounter has been building up to this final point and this declaration that they make here. You could arguably say that verse 37 is the most important verse in this narrative. Because in verse 37, God finally unveils the big picture of what's going on here. As this crowd now turns our attention from the man who was healed and then fixes our attention on Jesus, the Son of God. Look at verse 37. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he, Jesus, has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, 
some in this crowd may have not really fully realized what they were saying, but some in the crowd certainly knew exactly what they're saying. Either way, their words were communicating something critically important at this time. Their words were actually identifying who Jesus is because their words testified and praised that Jesus is the Messiah. That's what's going on here. That's what those words indicate. Now, so some in the crowd, either by faith or by divine providence, they're, they're confessing the truth. They're confessing that the work of Jesus that they are seeing, this is the promised work only of God, the Messiah. This is God's Messiah at work here. That's what they're seeing. That's what this revelation is coming to them to understand. This is God's Messiah at work. Now, you may not see that when you first look at the text, but I'm hoping to take you there to see it. More clearly, look at the words again in verse 37a. First, they testify that he has done all things well. Those are really critical this morning as we look at that. These are critical words because these words actually identify Jesus not as the Messiah here, but as God in the flesh. Because these words are actually simply echoing the words of Genesis 1.31. After God finishes his work in creation and declares, this is very good. In other words, when, when God says that in Genesis 1.31, he's saying, this is well done. This is good. This is perfect. This is complete. God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very Good. That's what they're recognizing in this. In Mark 7, this, this crowd of mostly, remember, mostly Gentiles, they at least did something that the people of Israel at the time could not and had not done. They recognized the wellness or goodness of Jesus' work. And they recognized it as a demonstration that he is God the Son in human flesh. Because they recognized the work that Jesus did here. This was the work that only God could do in creation. It's the same kind of work. He did something that only God can do. They recognized that and they identified that as God identified his work in creation. It is good. It is well. It is done perfectly. Then... In verse 37, we hear the crowd confess something that identifies who Jesus is as God's anointed Savior. It says he makes even the deaf hear and the mute speak. Now, now this confession here, this confession echoes the words of the prophet Isaiah, who in Isaiah 35, 1 to 6, prophesied that when the Messiah comes... Suffering mankind will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And Isaiah will go further in that text in verses 4 to 6 and say this. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And what I find really amazing here is that in Isaiah 35, what we have is God doing a special work here to point us to Christ. And, and what's amazing in, in this passage of Mark is that he is taking Isaiah 35. God is taking Isaiah 35 and applying it to the revelation and confession that we see in Mark 7. And he does that by using one unique word. 
One unique word in Mark 7 ties it directly back to Isaiah 35, 1 to 6. And that word was chosen by God intentionally to link these scriptures together. That word is found back in Mark 7.32. 7.32. Here Mark, under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses a truly unique word to describe the deaf man's speech impediment. And that word is majilalos. Majilalos. Now, here's how I know all this. Here's what I came to discover in studying this. But by using this word, Mark is connecting the miracle of Jesus to Isaiah's messianic prophecy. And that prophecy promised, promised that God himself would come near to man. And the reason I know that for certain is that word majilalos is only used two times in the Bible. Mark 7 and Isaiah 35. We find it very clearly in the Septuagint in Isaiah 35, 6. It's the word mute. The only two times that word shows up in God's word or in those two texts to link these two together to show us that the miracle taking place here is the fulfillment of the prophecy given in Isaiah 35. And that prophecy, it promised, as I said, that God himself would come near to man to open spiritually deaf ears and set free the tongues muted by sin so that those who trust in and hear the Messiah could sing and proclaim God's praise. And that's what's happening in Mark seven thirty-one to 37. Saints, Isaiah's prophecy is being fulfilled on that very day in that very Gentile place. Because Jesus, the Messiah, had come. And who did he come to? Not just to the Jews, but Gentiles as well. He doesn't come for the healthy, but the sick. He comes for the needy, not the deserving. And he came that day to reveal this great testimony to his praise. So that's why, that's why there in that crowd we see those people say that they are astonished beyond measure. They, they couldn't hold back their astonishment in the Messiah's presence. God has opened their eyes to see that. Remember, Peter didn't even see that until Mark 8. But now God's revealing it to Gentiles in Mark 7. It's astounding. It should astound us beyond measure. So Christian, let me ask you this this morning. Are you astonished beyond measure over who is doing the miracle in Mark 7? I hope you are. I hope you are because the big picture in this miracle reveals to us that the one who performs the miracle here is... God's anointed savior of sinners, who also happens to be God, the son, God himself came and entered into our world. This is God, the son who humbled himself to death, even death on a cross to forgive our sins. He entered into our world to open our spiritually blinded eyes and deaf ears. And he also came to set our hearts and our mouths free. To proclaim his praises now and for eternity. That's the big picture. That's why they say Jesus does all things well here. That's what God's conveying to us. Whether it's in creation, redemption or restoration. He does all things well. And it's all being encapsulated in this small narrative. 
I think this is good news for us as Christians. We've all been spiritually deaf and God has opened our ears. But it's also good news for those who are spiritually sick, those who are still dead in their sins. Because the one who healed this deaf man, he didn't just show up there and leave. No, he went from there to a cross and rose on the third day to justify those who look to him in faith and are saved. He will do that for them. He doesn't just heal this man of deafness. He sets free those who are entrapped in the silence of sin. He sets us free to sing God's praise. He makes spiritual sinners spiritually well. Those whose hearts are driven by this spiritual desire for sin. And it is spiritual, saints. Satan enslaves and blinds the eyes of the unbeliever. There's a spiritual war going on, but the victor has come and he has broken the silence and he has said, be opened. And people come and they are born again. They are made well because he does all things well. He compassionately and powerfully drew near to man in their neediness, right? In our neediness. And how did he do that? How does God express to us this powerful and compassionate Love he shows to this man in this gospel. It's through the gospel. Through the revelation of Jesus Christ. When the revelation of Jesus Christ comes to the spiritually deaf and they hear, it's because Jesus has said, Ephatha, be opened. It's a miracle of grace. It comes to us from the compassionate Christ, God's anointed Savior, the Messiah, God the Son. And saints, I think that should now astonish us beyond measure. And I think that should also give us hope when we speak to the spiritually deaf today and we try to proclaim to them the power and compassion of a Savior who does all things well. Because you know what? Paul said it well this morning. Our words can't change them, but the ever-living, powerful Word of God can penetrate the deaf ears of the unbeliever and grant them the ability to speak plainly the praises of God. He's done that for all of us here that believe. So we rejoice in him this morning. And we see in this revelation that God is doing all this work to reveal to us the greatness and grace of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's give thanks to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this amazing revelation of our Savior and Messiah. We thank you for showing us your mercy and grace. We thank you for the way in which you've opened our spiritual deaf ears to understand and then proclaim joyfully the truth that Jesus saves to the uttermost. He does all things well. We thank you for the ability to to now know that and declare that. We pray that you would help us to do it now with the same kind of zealous joy that we see expressed in Mark 737 that these people had. Let us do it for your praise and for the good of the lost, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.